Every day, we rise, challenging ourselves to work for what we believe in. At U.S. Border Patrol, protecting our borders is more than a job. It's a calling. Agents answer the call, working together to keep our country and communities safe. If you are ready for a new mission, join U.S. Border Patrol and go beyond. Learn more at cbp.gov careers. Recorded live. Hello, hello, my fellow Tai Chi and Qigong enthusiasts. This is Lama Dantrapa. Welcome to the fifth teleseminar of our program. I want to thank you for your committed journey following the path of our program. And I want to congratulate you on making uh, almost a half of the program. So we are going strong and exploring the principles that underlie all the all the styles and forms. And we also learn how to test these principles and how to apply them. So we don't just go into theory. We actually go into practice almost right away. In our previous uh, several uh, webinars and teleseminars, we have covered such topics as the, the foundational principles, um, including how to be in the flow, how to be natural, how to be attentive, how to be awake. We also explored uh, the energy awareness principles, including the principles of orientation, stabilization, rooting, grounding, and centering. We, in the most recent webinar, I covered the steps and the types of footwork that make particularly good sense when you want to move from point A to point B uh, over a relatively short time uh, space. Uh, so, for example, the space of uh, one foot or two feet, maybe three feet. Uh, that's usually the distances that we have to deal with people immediately. And we also look at how the footwork can generate the power for actions of other parts of the body. Well, obviously, the upper limbs are the most essential part of the rest of the body that would be projecting energy or receiving energy projections. And so that's something that we will be exploring in our next part of the program. Today, I would like to discuss with you more in detail the footwork, including natural steps sideways, natural steps forward, backward, as well as natural turns at any degree that you need to turn. And in addition to that, we also will look into such practices as the balancing of the foot, which in many Tai circles is referred to as the posting of the foot. And the last but not the least, how to combine several steps. So before I jump right into the subject matter of our conversation today, I see that there are a few folks on the call already. So if you feel like you have some questions you'd like to ask or 
you would like to volunteer to sit in the hot seat, so to speak, and receive a miniature coaching session pertaining to our subject matter, don't hesitate to raise your hand or unmute yourself, and I will be happy to talk to you and answer any questions or help you dig deeper into the exploration of footwork. Now, when people learn how to stand, and we already explored uh, how to stand in the most natural stance, we also looked at some of the body alignments. In motion, many of those alignments and many of those things that we discovered for ourselves in standing begin to deteriorate. In other words, as soon as we start moving, we may forget about some alignments. We may forget about the distribution of weight. We forget about some of the other principles because we are engrossed in something that is much more challenging than standing, and that is movement. On the other hand, when we begin to move, I always suggest to move having learned how to stand. Because it's almost like a baby learning how to walk. So the baby needs to learn how to stand before learning how to walk, right? Same idea. If we learn how to stand well, then we can walk well. If we don't know how to stand well, if we don't have any awareness of our body parts, we don't have any idea about alignment, we don't have any sense of centeredness, then often we will end up struggling instead of uh, uh, enjoying the ride, so to speak. Uh, let me see why you all are calling. Okay, so what we're doing is we are experimenting with standing first and we become really, really clear about the details, how to align different parts of the body, and we discover that just small misalignments already may cause uh, quite a bit of uh, discomfort. They require attention, and obviously they will create energy blockages and just create an impediment to being in the flow. Excuse me, I need to sneeze. <laughs> and you can see that this is not an edited teleseminar. If I need to sneeze, I'm going to sneeze. <laughs> so what we also discover for ourselves is how to translate all these alignments that we discover through standing into movement. We do this with a slow motion. How do we move slowly? Well, we make sure that we develop the ability to modulate our speed. And the funny thing about speed is that Tai Chi, by and large, is done in relatively slow speed format. Some Tai Chi practices may require speeding up 
But most of the time, it's not necessary. As a matter of fact, this is one of the few martial arts that are trained at a relatively slow speed. However, there is a principle that we should remember. You perform the way you train. So if you learn how to move only slowly and you don't know how to speed up, it's likely that you will not be able to perform at the pace that would match the speed of other people if you are engaging in any type of martial arts or self-defense situations. So, what do we do? We learn how to modulate our speed. We learn how to speed up or slow down at will. And when we develop this skill of speeding up and slowing down at will, this becomes something that we can turn up or turn down whenever we need to. And essentially, it creates freedom of choice as to how fast we want to be moving. So this is one of the major... Um, okay, I don't understand why you are just calling. Let me take a moment. You are. Are you on our teleseminar? Uh, yes, I do. Please enter the call ID followed by the pound key. Do you know the, the call ID? 15 minutes before the scheduled start time. The call ID is the... Uh, yeah. You can followed by the pound key. Yeah. You are now joining the call. Okay, great. I think you're in. <laughs> Okay, buddy, I'll be continuing our teleseminar. So what we're doing in our uh, exploration of footwork is we learn how to move relatively slowly first. And in order to be able to move slowly, we need only to just lift one foot off the ground. And this will essentially allow the gravity to do all the work. The only work that you need to do is whatever amount of energy is required to lift your foot off the floor. The gravity will start pulling you in the direction where there is no support anymore, where the foot is no longer touching the floor. And initially, it will be pulling you relatively slowly, but it, you will be accelerating at a pretty steady and substantial pace, a 9.8 meters per second square, which is also referred to as the uh, G acceleration. And what happens when you do that? When it happens when you engage in the movement, when you're being followed by or being moved by the gravity, is that the gravity really creates massive acceleration. It's very very difficult to, to get acceleration better, better than, than the g-force. G -force. So, so what do we do? What do, we do? Uh, uh, to, to maintain, maintain this level, level of, of uh, acceleration. acceleration. 
we simply, we simply allow, allow ourselves, ourselves to follow, to follow through, through with our with movement. Our movement. There is, there is no need for us to, uh, uh, to struggle against uh, gravity, gravity, which most people do when they move. We actually learn how to move being animated by gravity. Gravity becomes our friend. As a matter of fact, we delegate most of the need for power to Mother Earth. In other words, the element of Earth energy begins to empower our movement. In order to be able to rely on the element of Earth energy, on the gravity, we also need to use the other aspect of the element of Earth energy, and that is the bone structure of the body. So the bones basically are made of hard matter, unlike the rest of the body, which is made mostly of fluids. And when you align the bones, the bones will do a really good job uh, counterbalancing the other aspect of the on-earth energy, which is gravity. So, obviously, alignment is crucial when we talk about movement. The movement of the natural step and natural turn essentially is that kind of movement that just simply uses the gravity as much as possible and uses the alignment of the bone structure as much as possible. So we need to maintain a certain degree of stability, but we also destabilize ourselves when necessary. We need stability when we encounter challenges that are perhaps uh, we don't want to be pushed over by. Or if we are projecting energy, we don't want to be pushing ourselves away from our targets. However, when we are uh, moving, we also don't need stability. We actually need mobility. And in order to gain mobility, we need to destabilize ourselves. So that's an interesting thing that we do with the foot that is on the ground at the moment when the other foot lifts up we make sure that we don't perfectly align the center line with the toes of that foot. The further you misalign the center line from the toes of the foot that's on the ground, the less stable you will be. So if you need to just take a side step, the toes of the foot that is on the ground are going to be more or less pointing forward if you're in a natural stance there's going to be some angle. This angle may be enough. And so you just step sideways without changing that angle. If you're stepping forward, again, the toes of the back foot may not be in alignment with your center line. As a matter of fact, if they were in alignment with the center line or if center line was in alignment with the toes of the back foot, you turn center line away pretty much directly forward in the direction where you're stepping. That will also allow you to project energy in that direction, by the way. And when you land on the ground with the front foot at the end of the natural step, that front foot will immediately be in alignment with the center line. You will be able to bring the weight onto the foot and you will maintain stability. So 
there is a really good reason to turn center line directly forward when you're stepping forward with a natural step. When you're stepping backwards, the center line needs to turn away from the front foot because you no longer need stability. You actually need to destabilize yourself and start literally falling backwards. Except you're not just falling backwards, you are turning. So by the time that the back foot lands on the ground, you turn your center line away from the toes of the front foot. And now they're in alignment with the toes of the back foot. Again, that's exactly what will provide you stability upon landing. Because most of your weight will be distributed on the back foot. And since the toes of the back foot are going to be in alignment with the center line, you will have stability. So in other words, you can see that we destabilize ourselves when we need to move. This happens even more uh, abundantly or more clearly when you perform a natural turn. You turn your center line away from the toes of the weight-bearing foot, so much so that you cannot turn any further. But if you need to turn further, then you need to do something with your toes. You actually need to move your toes to catch up, at least to some extent, with the rotation of the torso. They may not catch up perfectly with the center line, but at least they may uh, make sure that you don't twist your hips too much. And some people don't have that much mobility in their hip joints, so they won't be able to twist their hips too much, or a little bit of a turn already feels like too much. So what we do is we pivot on the heel of the standing foot. So as we continue turning the center line away from the toes, where the toes used to be pointing, of the weight-bearing foot, the toes start rotating toward the center line, or at least trying to catch up with it on the heel of the foot. So that's one of the unique aspects of the natural turn. The heel stays on the ground. The heel stays on the ground because it provides you the streamlining of the bone structure of the leg. If you lift the heel and pivot on the ball of the foot, you get about streamlining of the toes or the bones of the leg because you will be standing on the tip of toes or on the ball of the foot. It also means that you create a tension in your calves. That's the only way to lift the heel up in the air. And that means that you're no longer relying on that element of earth energy within your body, the bones. Now you are using your muscle, which are never as strong as bones. And the bone structure of the leg now becomes crooked or zigzag. As soon as it happens, you are not going to have as much stability. And we can test that. We can actually ask a practice partner, would you please push me while I'm performing a natural turn, pivoting on the heel, pivoting on the ball of the foot, or doing something else, whatever else people do when they turn. So in other words, you can compare different ways, different versions of the turn, different techniques of turning, to find out for yourself. What provides you maximum stability while you're turning? And the stability is very dynamic. So 
So you can also turn in the direction where the person is pushing, which is really cool. It's basically an extension of the centering exercise. Remember, we test how centered you are by pushing you. You're going to ask your practice partner to push you, and if you gently pivot uh, around the axis of your body, which is more or less in alignment with your spine, pivoting in a direction where the energy is pushing or, or where the energy is flowing. If it's flowing more to the left of the center line, you pivot to the left. If it's flowing to the right of the center line, you pivot to the right. Well, in case of greater or maybe continuous push, like for example, the person is not just pushing you once, but the person may want to continue pushing you. They may be uh, just holding the hand next to your body or, or uh, touching you and actually just continuously pushing, 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 pushing. What do you do? You can only turn to a certain reasonable degree, usually at the right angle, away from the natural stance until you start getting twisted. So in natural turn, we can pivot much further than 90 degrees. And that's exactly what we use in addition to uh, the, the, natu- the uh, standard pivoting action that happens when we just do the centering. So if the person is pushing you beyond the 90 degrees angle away from where your center line was pointing initially, and the energy still keeps on coming at you, you can simply lift the foot, the, the, your front foot at the moment. Now, you could step forward if you didn't receive the energy projection from the person who's pushing you. But instead of stepping forward, you will be performing a natural turn. You essentially are going uh, to make the turn in the direction where the energy is flowing. So if the person is pushing you with a greater energy flowing to the right of your center line, you simply take a natural turn to the right. And if necessary, you can land with a foot on the ground and then take another natural turn in the same direction. You can even do what we call the bounce. And this bounce basically is a tapping of the foot instead of landing on the ground solid. How do we know when to tap and when to land? Well, essentially, it's just a matter of feeling whether or not the energy keeps on coming. If it keeps on coming, so the person is pushing you beyond 90 degrees of pivoting, then instead of pivoting with both feet on the ground, you actually start switching to doing natural turns. And if you did one natural turn and energy keeps on coming, like the person will essentially will have to run around you, and you just keep on turning. The person may make a full circle running around you as they're trying to push you, and you will be just pivoting on the heel of the back foot. And if they change the direction of their push. For example, instead of pushing you to the right of the center line, they start pushing you to the left of the center line. Guess what? You will initially just pivot in the way that we do when we practice centering. 
And then if push keeps on coming, we'll also perform a natural turn or several natural turns to the left. So it essentially gives us an ability to pivot to an infinite um, degree rather than just 90 degree angle. And what happens as a result is the person who's pushing <laughs> will run out of steam very quickly. They will get tired of running around you. It's a fantastic and really fun exercise for you. It's a great exercise. It's a great workout for the pusher because the person who's pushing will actually have to run around at the same time trying to push you as the person who's receiving the push. Now, of course, you can also trade roles. And then you will be the one pushing and your practice partner will be receiving the push. And then it's going to be a great workout for you. It's a nice cardio exercise to run around your practice partner, trying to push him. What also happens is that you will probably be able to stop as soon as the person is not longer pushing without falling over. Sometimes people forget about non-resistance, and so they start pushing back. And essentially, if you're pushing your practice partner, you feel that the practice partner is pushing back, is resisting you, you can quickly take your hand away, and your practice partner will pull over, or at least will lose balance to some extent, because he or she was pushing against your hand, and suddenly that hand is no longer there. But uh, what happens is you don't want to do that to yourself. <laughs> so when the person is pushing you, you don't want to resist, and then if the person suddenly takes the hand away, lose balance or fall on your face. You simply give just enough resistance to feel the energy coming at you, and you may be able to use that energy to even turn you. But you don't need to push back. And that means you're not reacting or you're not resisting. You're responding rather than reacting to that push. So this is basically a fantastic way to learn how to integrate both the centering exercise with an actual turn. What also happens in our practice is we learn how to create waves. Now, with waves, the dynamics are quite different. When we send a wave into the other person's body, or even if we're just sending waves without touching anybody, just simply uh, learning how to send the waves, for example, into our arms, or elbows, or hands, or other parts of the body. I usually even suggest starting to learn how to send a wave into the shoulder, because shoulder obviously is the part that connects torso to the arm, or arm to the torso. So if you can send a wave to the shoulder, you know that you can probably send it a little bit further into the elbow. If you cannot send a wave to the shoulder, because it gets stuck somewhere in your torso, then it doesn't make sense to learn how to perform any type of strikes with the arms. 
because you won't have any power in those strikes because energy waves are not getting into your arms. So you need to learn how to send the waves to the shoulders first. And the easy way to test and to learn how to send this wave is to ask your practice partner to extend arms in front of them. Palms facing, both palms facing towards you, one hand on top of the other. And touch your shoulder with the palms uh, of whichever hand is first in front of the other hand. What's going to happen is they can push you with the power of both of the hands into the shoulder. But the objective of the practice partner now is not to push, but just to stand there with arms stretched out in front of them, touching your shoulder. Your task is to tap into the ground with a bouncing foot. You literally are tapping into the energy source of the Elmer Earth. And you're learning how to send the wave. Now, it's interesting that people say, hey, wait a moment, Earth doesn't do waves. That would be element of water. I say, sure. In a sense, we are learning how to transition from element of Earth to the element of water. But if you've been through an earthquake or two, you know that Earth actually does move in a wave-like fashion. And sometimes you can look at the pavement of the road after the earthquake struck, and it looks like uh, it's no longer straight. It's, it's like a wavy surface. And sometimes these waves become so dramatic that they destroy the road completely or they you know, destroy buildings and things like that. But basically, the earth can move like waves. It doesn't move like waves all the time. Our bodies need to be trained to move like waves. And that's what we're doing right now. When you tap the ground with a ball of the foot, you can feel how there is a little ripple going through the leg into your hip. And I suggest learning how to tap first by just taking side steps. It's the most simple, the most elegant maneuver when you're taking a side step. And then when time to bring the foot, the, the second foot closer to the stepping foot, instead of just shuffling the foot, you lift it up and bounce with the ball of the foot off the floor so it bounces away from the ground back into the air. Then you can step in the opposite direction. So essentially if you step with the left foot first, then the right foot will bounce and will step directly in the opposite direction to the right. And then the left foot bounces close to the right foot. So the bounce always needs to happen real close to the standing foot, real close, like within an inch or two. And then step in the opposite direction. And so basically you develop a very simple pattern of step and step, or step and tap. Step, tap, step, tap, step, tap, and so on. You don't have to do it fast. I actually suggest to learn how to do this slowly first. Because if you go too fast, you won't be able to notice the 
all the details of this ripple effect. You will be busy focusing on how fast it can move. We want to learn how to pay attention to the details of the ripple effect of the bounce. So when you took a step and you bounced, it don't just lift the leg up in the air. Notice how it also affects your hip. And if the hip is affected, it will affect the pelvis. Now, the pelvis will obviously affect the lower torso, including the sacrum, which is the foundation of the spine, which will potentially send the ripple through the spine. And it may go all the way to the head. I don't recommend sending the wave all the way to the head because it may give yourself a whiplash. So instead of doing that, I suggest sending the waves into the shoulders at the juncture of the thoracic and cervical spine. Instead of going up into the cervical part of the spine, the wave will go into one shoulder or the other. You can pick and choose which shoulder to send this wave to. There are some easier and some harder options, but I'm not going to tell you right now which shoulder you should send this wave. You will feel. When you start doing this, I can guarantee that you will feel that there's a little bit, it's a little bit easier to send this wave into one shoulder or the other shoulder, depending on what kind of tap or what kind of step you're taking. For example, if you are taking a side step when you're tapping, most likely the wave will go to the same side shoulder. Now, I wonder if it's going to be the same when you are performing the step forward. Okay, I'm, I'm actually going to divulge a little bit of a, a principle here. The principle of yin and yang movement. Yin movement is the movement in which you are stepping and sending the energy wave to the opposite shoulder. Yang movement is the movement in which you're stepping with one foot and sending the energy to the same side shoulder. So yin and yang are just that simply distinct. Now, how do we know that you need a yin movement or yang movement in any particular situation? You simply look at your center line. The yin movements bring energy to the center line. Yang movements take the energy away from the center line. Simple as that. For example, opening is the movement that moves sideways away from the center line. That's a yang movement. So opening coincides with the side step with the same side foot. For example, if you're performing opening with the right arm, the right foot would step towards the target. It's opening that we consider a young movement. It will send the wave in the same side, shoulder, and then ripple down the arm. If, for example, it's the closing movement uh, or, or even forward push, it happens on the center line. So the energy condenses to the center line that requires the yin movement. So if you tap with the right foot, the wave would need to go to the opposite shoulder and then potentially to the opposite elbow or hand. 
Uh, by the way, I always teach to send the waves to the elbows first before sending waves to the hands. For the exact same reason as I described why I teach how to send the waves to the shoulder first. Elbow obviously is closer to the body than the hand, uh, or at least the wave that you send down arm will arrive to the shoulder first, and then we'll go to the elbow, and then we'll go to the hand. If it cannot reach the shoulder, forget about it. You need to work on releasing tension in your torso. By the way, the more you practice these waves, sending these waves, the more relaxed the torso will become. So this is kind of a really cool combination of diagnostic and treatment in one the same exercise. But once you learn how to send the wave to the shoulder, the next station is the elbow. If you cannot send the wave to the elbow, it usually means that there is too much tension in the shoulder, the girdle, the muscles of the shoulder or the pecs. If you send the wave into the elbow just fine, then the wave can also travel further down in the lower arm, the forearm, into your wrist and hand, and eventually all the way to the fingertips. I'm not going to teach you in this program how to send waves to the fingertips, although that's the most effective way to strike. It's also more complex, certainly outside of the scope of our 60-month-long program. This is something that my advanced students begin to study after at least a year of training with me, at least a year, and often more than a year. But it's totally possible, and it's extremely effective, because then your fingertips become your weapon, and they allow you much greater precision and also greater reach. Before we talk about that any further, let's take a look at how we learn to send waves not only sideways with side steps. We can also tap and, for example, step forward and then tap to the back foot and step backwards. It doesn't matter which foot is forward, which foot is backwards. Whichever foot is forward, that's the foot that is going to step forward first to initiate the natural step forward. And once you've completed the natural step forward, you bring the back foot closer in so you're not stretching yourself too much. You, as you bring the foot, bring it real close to the front foot and bounce off the floor so the back foot is up in the air again. If you bounce with the back foot, whichever foot that is, right or left, doesn't matter. That will most likely create a ripple for your body. Now, it's going to be a backward movement again if you're stepping backwards after the bounce. So then you can actually consciously direct the ripple into the same side shoulder. And eventually you can send it in the same side elbow and arm but let's work on the shoulders first. So if you tap with the back foot, send the same, send the wave in the same side shoulder because the next move will be the natural step backwards, which coincides with backward pull. Backward pull also moves energy away from center line and 
essentially that is yang movement. So the energy goes in the same cycle. When you develop this clarity of distinctions between yin and yang movements, you will never be the same because you actually will become an embodiment of this ancient principle of yin and yang energies. One more example of a yin energy is the closing that happens. Basically, it's a movement of the arm that coincides with a natural turn. So if you make natural turns instead of steps after the bounce, the exact same dynamics would happen. You basically tap with the foot and then turn in the direction of that foot that just tapped. Then when you bring the foot down on the ground, bring the other foot up and then tap with that foot real close to the standing foot, turn in the direction of the second foot. So essentially you can switch from doing natural steps from side to side to doing natural turns from side to side. And you can turn to whatever degree you feel like you need to turn probably you will be overwhelming yourself if you're turning too much. So I recommend not to turn a lot further than 90 degrees, but you can if you need to. But it's not necessary probably, at least at this point in time, for the sake of training. You can just turn pretty much 90 degrees from one side to the other side. So it looks almost like the centering exercise, except instead of turning... 180 degrees all around. So literally, if you're facing north, when you're studying a natural sense, you're turning east and west when you're doing pivoting. But when you do natural turns, in this case, you can do the same thing. You tap the ground with the back foot. So, for example, if you take a natural stance facing north, turn to the right so you face east and then tap with the back foot so that the back foot is up in the air and you pivot on the right foot to the left, so on the right heel to the left. 180 degrees. 180 degrees turn will make you face west. And then you land with the left foot on the ground and tap with the right foot. And then you will turn, again, 180 degrees to the right to face east. And then you can tap with the left foot, turn 180 degrees to the left to face west. So basically you are turning 180 degrees if needed. You don't have to go as far. You can go less. You can go 90 degrees. You can go you know, 120 degrees, whatever it works for you at this particular moment. The idea is that you can go a lot further if necessary. But the idea also is that it's not the number of of degrees that matters. It's the principle. So what we're doing is we're learning how to send the wave into the opposite shoulder during the tap and natural turn. When you're tapping and turning, for example, to the left, if you tap with the left foot, turn to the left on the right heel, the right shoulder should receive the wave. This wave will potentially enable you to send uh, a powerful strike called closing. 
or you can do ward off, or you can do other things with it. But essentially, the idea of this movement is to learn how to send energy waves through the parts of the body that really matter uh, for to our practice. And so what, the, what we do is create this level of limberness and this level of uh, uh, fluidity, if you will, that most people in Tai Chi and Qigong can only dream about. When people ask me, how do you move like this? You move like you're like a jellyfish. I say, yeah. Well, first of all, I remember that I have bones, which means I can relax on my bone structure. And then I move with my body like a jellyfish because I send the ripple, the waves through my body. Now that's the sign of expertise or a sign of mastery in Tai Chi when the person is not just doing moves with their arms and legs, they're actually moving with weights. Now that's what I also call a harmonious culture of movement. It's one of the elements, uh, one of the aspects of harmonious culture of movement is that you are not moving like a robot or a stick figure. You're actually moving like you're an octopus or a jellyfish. That is the key aspect of a harmonious culture movement that facilitates the ability to deliver energy waves also beyond your body. So you can send this ripple in your body, but then when it reaches, for example, the elbow, boom, you can send the wave into your target through the elbow, and it keeps on rippling. Now, not in your body, but in your target body, the body of your opponent, for example. What happens when you do this type of movements? It also helps a great deal to pay attention to your breath. I recommend actually leading with the breath, which means you inhale, tap. Exhale, step. Inhale, tap. Exhale, step. So in uh, my webinar last week, I didn't uh, clarify this enough, I think. So I'm clarifying it now. Leading with breath means you begin breathing in as you are tapping. And then as you're stepping, you begin to breathe out before the foot even reaches the floor. Why? Well, remember, a hand or elbow or whatever part of the body you're striking with, ideally would reach the target before the foot lands on the floor. If the foot landed on the floor first, then the energy, the kinetic energy of your movement basically drains into the ground through that foot. And then you don't have the charge anymore to deliver impact into a target with a hand. Or if you still try to do that, you'll be using force instead of power. Well, if you want to synchronize the impact with exhalation, that means you need to start exhaling before the foot reaches the floor. Makes sense, right? So, obviously, with inhalation, the same thing happens. You, you start inhaling a little bit before you even tap the ground with the foot. And then as you tap the ground, the, the ripple goes through the body, 
you may not be able to inhale very effectively if you are really into this ripple. So you may also want to modulate how much of the ripple you allow to flow through your body. So basically you can uh, turn it up or down, so to speak, in terms of the volume or in terms of intensity of this wave. If you really get into it, you probably will notice that you will have different breathing patterns as opposed to when you're not really getting into it and you're just paying attention to your breath first and foremost. I suggest to pay attention to your breath first before you really get into this movement so that you get it down pat. And then you can add more ripple effect and, and increase the intensity of your waves gently and, and steadily. So that basically creates the ability to kind of replicate how the baby learns to walk. You know, the baby doesn't know how to walk yet. The baby just learns how to stand. And then taking just one step is a big deal. And everybody is cheering up, and the parents are happy, and the baby is probably happy or maybe confused or maybe uh, losing balance and falling over. <laughs> so if we just get overly excited about the step, we'll probably forget about the breath. We don't want to forget about breath. We want to maintain the awareness of breathing because that will make our practice much more effective in the long run. And as you take another step, again, Notice how your breathing is leading. As you lead with your breath uh, in your training, you'll also be able to lead with your breath in your practice. And when the push comes to shove, you'll be able to lead with your breath even in any type of martial arts interaction, whether it's a sparring, push hands, bout, or self-defense situation. Why would you want to lead with your breath? Because... With the breath, you're alive. If you're not leading with the breath, you are likely stifling your breath, which means that you have too much tension. The stressed out breathing often is the result of having too much tension, or sometimes people just forget to breathe when they get overly excited. We don't want to get overly excited, so what we do is we learn how to maintain this awareness of breathing at the very basic level of our training, then it also will translate into more advanced levels of our training and will still be kind of a default thing that we default to even when we are in a tough situation or somebody is trying to punch us or somebody is attacking us or if we're just dealing with a worthy opponent, for example, and push hands. And what happens also is that sometimes you don't even have to push the person. With the breath, you literally sometimes just inhale and exhale swiftly and thoroughly enough. And the person who was going to push you, for example, may be unconsciously dissuaded from pushing you. It's like winning the battle without fighting. I've done it many times. I've demonstrated it in probably hundreds of seminars. 
when the person is trying to strike me, and I just focus on my breath, and I make sure that this breath creates such a dynamic interaction with the person's movement that the person the person just literally feels like, wow, I better not go there because I don't know what's going to happen. <laughs> so this is essentially a, a very advanced level of practice when we're talking about the element of air. And mind you, I practice Tibetan Qigong. And in Tibetan tradition, there is the element of air in addition to earth, water, and fire. In Chinese tradition, there is no element of air, as far as I know. There is metal and there is wood. And those are pretty much just another form of hard matter. For whatever reason, the element of air just escaped the Chinese nomenclature. As a result of that, there are no practices associated with the element of air in most styles of Chinese Qigong. And these practices associated with the element of air are kind of a signature or at least one of the uh, cornerstones of Qidao. So they create the ability to work with people sometimes long distance or at least a short distance but without physical contact. And even if contact occurs, the element of air practices are so much more subtle and at the same time intense. So you kind of try to figure out what this koan, how can subtle and intense be the qualities describing the same practice? But that's exactly what it is. The subtlety of, of the practice means it is very precise. Intense means it doesn't mean that I'm putting a lot of effort. It means the intensity of, of effect that can be uh, seen in the person who is receiving, for example, the element of error energy projection is sometimes a lot more substantial than the effect that is seen in the person who received the element of earth projection. The element of earth is going to be just like a, a thud. So basically it's like a, a low intensity and, and low amplitude, sorry, sorry, a high amplitude, low frequency waves. And then when we make this waves higher frequency, they turn into the element of water. Lower amplitude and higher frequency yet, turn this waves into the element of air. And when we rarefy these waves and make them so high frequency that they're virtually impossible to notice with the naked eye. That's what we talk about the element of fire practice. And essentially, these are the practices that don't follow just this linear progression, but you can certainly see that um, the earth is easier to grasp, easier to learn, easier to practice. Elm of water is a little bit more complex, more dynamic, and also has to deal with all this wave uh, mechanics that is not as easy to uh, master from get-go. That's why I usually present elements of water practices after we learn the elements of earth practices. And then elements of air follows the elements of water because it's even more complex, even more refined, and at the same time more intense and scary. 
and on the fire is is so far beyond comprehension of most people who reside in the bodies thinking that it's made of hard matter that they cannot perceive most of the practices done in the element of fire, and that's okay because they're not for showing off. They're mostly for personal development. And if we do use the element of fire in situations like martial arts, for example, we don't do it for the purpose of showing off or proving anything to anyone or we don't do this even for self-defense as much. We actually, these practices basically are about being at the right place at the right time. So if you are really good at element of fire practices, you will not be at the wrong place at the wrong time. So you basically will not even have to get an altercation or if necessary, you will be able to affect the consciousness of the person involved or people involved that well, they will not be able to formulate this thought in their minds. Oh, I need to punch this person or, uh, you know, it's okay to raise a hand at him. Now, when we study this, obviously we have to remember about the natural progression of steps. So the natural steps are the foundational piece. The tapping and stepping is something that I encourage you to practice between now and the rest of the, the, the end of this program. And beyond the end of this program, obviously, you will be able to benefit tremendously from learning how to move with this tap and step dynamics. The last but not least, I wanted to remind you that it's possible to move with several steps forward with alternating feet. If we just walk, obviously that's what we do. We just alternate the right foot, left foot, right foot, left foot. But when we are doing, uh, uh, for example, the Qigong walk or walking Qigong, the movement is different. And the difference is that it's not just walking right, left. There is a tap in between. So when you made a step with the left foot forward, for example, you can bring the right foot real close to the left, bounce with the right foot off the floor again, and then there is a freedom of choice, whether to step sideways or to step backwards or to take a natural turn. Well, another option is to step forward. So you can exercise this option, step forward. Then once you landed with the right foot on the floor, bring the left foot real close to the right tap again. And there is another moment of truth. You have freedom of choice where to step. If you need to step forward, great, step forward. This is no longer a cross step because you are no longer moving the leg just uh, from behind to the front. This is a step after the tap. And because of that, it's literally free of all of those uh, uh, setbacks or uh, uh, disadvantages of a cross step. Now, because you have freedom of choice, you can also do other things. For example, you can kick with this leg, or at least you can imitate the kick to distract attention. Or you can make uh, some 
fancy move with a leg that we do in our element of air practices. <laughs> and so basically this gives you tremendous freedom if you learn how to tap in between steps. And you can also learn that you can send waves into alternating arms. So if you're stepping with the left foot forward, the wave goes into the right shoulder and the right arm. If you tap and then step with the opposite foot, the wave goes in the opposite shoulder. So that creates a situation where you can also create a, um, a cascade of strikes if, ne if necessary. So you don't have to just step always with the natural steps that will be faster if you just take natural step forward and then follow up with another natural step forward, another natural step forward, the same foot pointing forward all the time. But you can also alternate the feet. And this essentially will give you an opportunity to alternate which arms is delivering a strike, or one arm may create a feint and then a strike with the other arm, or it can be like in boxing, a one-two punch, you know, a jab and, and cross punch and strike. Basically, this is something that gives you a tremendous number of variations on the scene. These variations go well beyond what people learn when they just practice forms. And that is what I really inspire you to discover for yourself. The variations, rather than just doing forms of like a robot, you've been programmed to do one move after another move. You don't have to perform one move after the next, after the previous one according to what the, the formula of the form is. You actually have total freedom of choice. With that freedom comes mastery. You cannot attain mastery in Tai Chi or other internal arts if you just do forms. I've never heard of anyone who would become a master just doing forms, just performing the same technique over and over again, following somebody else's footsteps. So if we're not relying on it, we might as well skip it entirely. <laughs> if it's not a necessary educational technique or didactical tool, well, then why are we going to waste time on it? Now, there are perhaps some good reasons to practice forms just for the sake of, for example, can, developing kinesthetic memory. Sure, kinesthetic memory is a nice thing to develop, so I don't want to say that forms are bad and should be banished, but that's the reason why I don't teach you forms. On this note, I would wrap up our teleseminar today. If anybody wants to have uh, any questions answered, Feel free to unmute yourself. I'm happy to answer any questions. And of course, if you don't have any questions, I want to once again wish you a happy new year. And I will look forward to speaking to you next week in our next webinar. Until then, have a wonderful week. Namaste.
Judy was boring. Hello. Then Judy discovered Jumbacasino.com. It's my little escape. Now Judy's the life of the party. Oh, baby, mama's bringing home the bacon. Whoa, take it easy, Judy. <laughs> The Chumba life is for everybody. So go to ChumbaCasino.com and play over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.